All right. Alfred Poor is the editor and publisher of Health Tech Insider and chief technology content officer for the virtual events group, as well as being a health tech keynote speaker and writer. Alfred, welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks. Today's topic is health tech, and we're talking about remote monitoring and all of the possibilities around that, and of course, all of the concerns as well. So let's start out, let's talk about, you wrote recently an article about Alexa. Let's talk about that as a listening device for health. How are people using that? Well, um, I don't think we've seen Alexa come into its full glory yet in terms of what it can do for, for health. Um, the simple applications are just the reminders. Um, people can use them to remind them of doctor's appointments. Uh, you can put in reminders when to take medications, things like that. Um, what is getting more interesting in the future is ways that Alexa can and will be able to monitor uh, people in the future in, in very useful ways. One of the things that I find particularly interesting is a lot, there, there's been a lot of research about identifying, actually di diagnosing conditions strictly from voice samples, just the way you talk. Um, and it doesn't have to be even the words that you say, but um, inflection, tonality, you know, the whole bunch of those things. And Certainly that can be used as a voice print to identify an individual, which is useful. But um, there's been, for a number of years, there've been a number of programs that have been able to diagnose things like um, a cough. If you take a cough voice sample, it's able to say, well, that's pneumonia, that's a simple head cold, that's you know, something else, COPD. Yeah, so um, it can really, that could be used for early detection. Another part though, that I think is particularly intriguing when you're talking about, especially talking about aging and seniors who the vast majority of seniors want to live independently in their own homes for as long as they can. And their families want them to do it as long as they're safe. Um, but one of the big problems is emotional. Um, the, there's a lot of reasons why seniors can end up feeling isolated, um, you know, alone, and from this, this can lead to anxiety and depression and, and a number of mental, mental health kinds of conditions. There are uh, systems that have been very effective at identifying emotional and mental state just from voice samples. So you could you could hear whether or not the, the person's struggling with anxiety or depression or, or whatever, ju just from the way they interact with the voice assistant. So I think there's a lot of potential there. That's interesting. Yeah. And all of those things ring true. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are getting into that area where they either recently or soon or currently are dealing with parents in that category. Um, the loneliness aspect, detection is one thing. Are there any, is there any aspect of it around um, mitigating or relieving that through an Alexa in some way. So, so it, it's interesting that you, you pick up on the loneliness. I don't know if you're aware of this, but a few years ago, um, the United Kingdom government, the UK government, established a minister of loneliness. That's how important 
they see loneliness as a, a determinant of health um, when you come right down to it. And, and the answer is, yeah, there's a lot of ways that intelligent devices in the home can help mitigate some of these issues. One of them is just simply keeping them connected to loved ones. I mean, with Alexa now, you can say, call so-and-so, and, -so, and it will it can ring through and, and place a call to any, anybody in your, your contact list. And so it removes some of the, the friction in terms of placing a call. Um, uh, and another part of it is that it makes it easier to engage with the world, to get news, to hear podcasts, to hear the music that you love um, without having to fumble with you know, some stereo equipment that it's too much work to bother listening to. So um, being able to have a, a playlist on Amazon Music, for example, um, music is a very evocative medium, especially for the elderly. Even even those with dementia or, or you know, impaired cognitive facility, music seems to unlock a lot of the emotion and 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 memories and uh, some of those cognitive abilities. So there's there's that potential. Um, but but the third part, and this is what I find intriguing, and this is this is not new. This is work that's been going on for oh, possibly at least a decade, and that is the the intelligent companion um a lot has been done with robotic companions art you know uh, uh, robotic cats there or or a seal there's a, cl a classic seal fuzzy thing that you can that you can pet but and interact with and i think that um i think that as intelligent assistants like alexa evolve and they become more conversational uh, right now it's, you have to trigger it. They're, they're, they're getting to the point where they can answer, can carry on a conversation for a sentence or two, but that's about it. Once we get to conversational interaction, I think that it's going to be a lot more engaging for individuals, uh, who, who are otherwise living alone to be able to discuss things with it, to ask for information and then hold a conversation. So I think, I think that will help address some of the isolation issues. I think conversation is key. People who listen to this podcast should know if they don't already. I'm a little bit of a Luddite around technology <laughs> because I think a human connection is important. But when we talk about using a device, I use my device for the music and it's largely to make me feel better. Um, not that I'm suffering from any depression or anything, but like if I'm just not beyond bored but not depressed. Let's put it in some right. middle level there. And, I say, and I'm listening to a lot of old music. I, I wrote a post the other day. Right? Anyway, 70s. But so, the automated 70s, aspect... 70s music is not that old, please. <laughs> okay. Where was I going? So the automated aspect possibly of detecting a lonely person and having the device call like a Google number would call you in and let you know that you're about to be connected to someone to call your child and then make it sound like they called you and you could go, Hey mom, how you doing? I was just thinking about you. So it would seem spontaneous yep. and it would be an automatic uplift for that person. Right. And they wouldn't feel like, Oh, I don't want to call my kid. I don't want to bother them. They're busy. Just a short little thing. 
it would be one kind of a health alert that you would want people, your, your, your caregiver, your, your family, your friends to receive, to know that, you know, you know, Alfred could use a call right now. If you can, can you, you know, can you give him a call sometime? And, and people with their busy lives, that kind of a reminder would be, be very helpful. But an interesting thing is that, um, you talk about the human contact and I, I share a number of your Luddite views instead, in spite of my, yeah, deep involvement with technology throughout the years. Um, but one of the things that's fascinating is this whole concept of digital therapeutics, uh, and Basically, what that means is it's, a, it's like a smartphone app that a doctor could prescribe for a certain condition. And mental health has been the leading edge for a lot of those. They're, they're also getting into things like uh, um, opioid addiction and, and, and some other things. There's certainly a lot of physical therapy kinds of things. But the potential's there for the device to offer treatment you know, on its own, um, to be able to say, here's a breathing exercise. Let's do this together. Let's have this calming breathing exercise for the next five minutes, or here's a, um, you know, here's a guided meditation. Let's, let's go through this and, and relieve stress through, through this, this activity. And, and you don't need another human to make that happen. I mean, as a side note, one of the one of the gifts that's going to keep on giving from this pandemic is that mental health services have always been overworked, um, but it's going to be even worse now. I mean, they, depending on the, the studies, anywhere from a half to two-thirds of adults in the U.S. alone are struggling with mental health issues, stress, anxiety, depression. Um, and And we just don't have enough bodies to take care of them all. So we're going to be turning to these digital therapeutics one way or the other. Um, and it's going, to, it's going to be very helpful. It's going to get services to people who otherwise wouldn't be getting them for a, a ton of reasons. But again, the digital assistant could be the frontline therapist um, in, in situations like this and provide that, that initial support. And, it, and then if it goes beyond something that if they're not getting the results or, or it you know, sounds worse or there's self-harm threats or something like that. Certainly then it can bounce it to the, the emergency contacts and, and get help lined up that way. But I, I see this as part of a continuum of care that helps make the human part much more efficient and take the, take the easy stuff off their plate so that they can focus on the hard stuff. Right. That's what I like. As a Luddite, I know the technology is coming, so how do we use it in the best possible way? On top of that, I'll say, call one of your old friends today. They want to hear from you. On the phone. I'm going to call. Don't text them. Because I just saw, I listened to a podcast about that this morning. So since you sort of brought it up, let's jump ahead to talking about Germany and their mental health. Oh, app. sure. What's going on there? So, so again, this digital therapeutic concept is very powerful. And... Germany just recently announced that um, everyone who is uh, uh, a part of their national health health insurance program, which is roughly half of the, the population, they now have free access or you know, 100% reimbursed access to digital therapeutic programs that will help them with stress and anxiety. 
Um, it's a real bellwether. And uh, we're, we're beginning to see that uh, sort of siloed in some healthcare systems, some insurance systems in this country. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, it's going to be a, a, a big deal and it's going to become part of the norm. I also think there's a, a big advantage um, to these kinds of programs in terms of getting help to people who need help who might not otherwise get it. Because, you know, if you have to go see a therapist in capital letters and you have to make an appointment and you have to go to their office and it, those are all energy barriers for somebody to make initialize that, that phone call and make it happen. But if you get an app on your phone that's a game that you can play and it calms you down and it helps you relax and that is delivering the benefit that you want. Um, and it, it's going to help people. And, and these aren't just games that people have come up with. I mean, these are things that have been FDA cleared, um, proven scientifically, not just to do no harm, but actually produce the benefits that they claim that they are going to. Um, and so, so yeah, I think what Germany's done there is a very, a very important bellwether. You know, it's, it's a, a milestone in the whole progression towards telehealth, um, digital therapeutics, a lot of the uh, health technologies that are going to change the way we view healthcare and 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 consume healthcare as 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 recipients. Yeah, and I mean, someone's paying for those therapist visits. Well, and the, there's limited capacity. Yeah, so the, it's providing supply, the app. It's supply and demand. We do not have the supply. I mean, it just flat out. There's just no question about it. I mean, when half to a third of the country needs the service, we don't have enough therapists to cover all them. So we either we don't don't solve the problem or or we turn to some other solution. And and to me, technology is a a viable, affordable, effective solution. Nice. What other um what other kinds of tech are available for monitoring? So monitoring. Well let's let's narrow it to, to focus on aging in place for the moment. And, okay. and then later we can circle back and talk about monitoring in, in other terms for chronic health and, and, and general, uh, general health kind of issues. Right. Okay. So aging in place, the classic wearable is that pendant that you wear with a big red button on it. And if you fall down, you can press the button and somebody will come help. Um, the, the official terms for these is the, our purse devices, P-E-R-S, personal emergency response system, purse. And we all know them as a help. I've fallen and I can't get up. Um, but, uh, the hidden truth about these devices is that they're not used. Um, there's a lot of good reasons why seniors don't like to wear them. I mean, to me, it's like when you were in kindergarten and your mom would pin a note to your sweater for the teacher, <laughs> right? Because Got it. That, yeah. Yeah. That's how they were going to, got to get you, get the message in. Um, and, and so that's just, yeah, it's, it's demeaning. It's people, people resist that. 
And so they end up leaving it hooked on the chair or on the bedside table or, or whatever. But more than that, there's a number of studies that have shown that even when people have access to one of these emergency response systems and they get into a situation where they truly need assistance, you want to take a guess as to the percentage of people who push the button? I'm going to go 10. You're very close. It's actually about seven. So less than one in 10 who need assistance will call for it. And again, many good reasons. It's not so bad. I did something stupid. I'm embarrassed. Um, if I just wait here for an hour or two, I'll be fine and I'll be able to get up. Um, but the big one is I don't want my kids to know because if they do, then they'll think that I need care and they might move me out of my home. Um, so there's a lot of good motivation. Now, I'm not against purse devices. I want people to be able to summon help if they want it. But as, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I have a hundred year old mother who lives by herself in a single family home with no immediate neighbors, six hours from here. And so, um, now these are issues that I know and care about a lot. And so for me, it's great that she's got a way to summon help if she wants it. But I also don't want to count on that. So for me, one of the key components for any system to, to keep track of a, a, a senior aging in place um, is to make sure that there's a passive component to that. And, there's, and there you have tons of options. Go back to Alexa. It's not there yet. But um, there are actually there are some services that are using a, a digital assistant, Alexa or, or other one, and um, you'll be able to call out for help and, and it'll be able to summon help. Um, the, the holy grail on that is to be able to, they're listening. I mean, the mics are on all the time. They can hear all sorts of stuff all the time. If they could detect the sound of a fall and then proactively reach out and you know call out and try to get the, the person to respond. And if they don't get a response, then go ahead and, and, and summon help. Um, it's that kind of a passive response that uh, is, is needed. Now, there are camera systems. I'd like to point out that uh, most home security systems already have all the data. They'll have a camera that can detect motion. They should be able to detect when somebody's in the room and if they fall and if they stop moving. However, a lot of seniors, and I think rightfully so, don't really like the idea of a big brother camera watching over them all the time. Fortunately, there are a number of, of passive and essentially invisible kinds of solutions. One of my favorites is, have you seen Wallabot, the device that helps you find studs and pipes and uh, and and... and electric wires and stuff behind the wall that comes from a, um, a Israeli company and it's essentially radar technology that they originally detect designed to help, um, characterize cancers below the skin. So they could use that to, to scan and, and create an imaging of the, the tumors within the body. The wallabot was a 
sort of a low-hanging fruit consumer product that they could put out there to generate sales. But since then, they've, they've created a really cool thing, which is a panel. It's solid-state radar panel, so it transmits and receives invisible radio waves. And you put it up in a room, and it's able to detect uh, when somebody's there and if they fall. And if when they fall, they stop moving. So it can detect a whole lot of information. And that's a product that's already available. Speaking with the people, the technology is capable of more. They're able to, first of all, distinguish between multiple people in the same room, just from this one flat panel. They can also detect heart, uh, the, the breathing rate and probably can do pulse rate as well. Um, again, just from this little thing that looks like a white, white panel on the, on the wall. Um, and so with that kind of information, you could create a really effective, passive and, and, uh, non-invasive, non-obtrusive kind of, of monitoring system for people in the home. Nice. So let's, since you bring let, up the monitoring and well, let me, and that, let, let's, let me just yeah, go, go ahead once, one step further on that. Now, again, being a Luddite and, and sort of <laughs> a problem solver by nature, um, those solutions really weren't suitable for my mom. Um, so I came up with one that when we had the conversation more than 10 years ago about incapacitation and what she wanted, I said, if you, if you should fall and hurt yourself and need help, how long would you want to go before somebody knew? And she said, oh, two or three days. And <laughs> needless to say, that was not an acceptable answer. Uh, <laughs> it's a great question, though. Oh, I love the way you framed it. How long would, are right, you willing right, it, to go instead well, of... Yeah, make it their choice. I mean, that's that's really the the whole point of this is, is to enable them to make the choices that they want. Um, but so I wanted to come up with something that's passive. Um that she wouldn't be aware of. Uh, I mean, she knows that I'm watching, but she, you know, she wouldn't, it wouldn't be in her face all the time. And so I repurposed a device that was invented for a totally different purpose. Um, there's a, uh, a device called Fine, P-H-Y-N. And it's a, a system that's designed to monitor your water usage in your home and to let you know if there are leaks. Because if you're, on a you know, water system and you pay a monthly water bill, a leak can run your bill up pretty quickly. So it's a, it's a pretty cool system. And the neat thing about it is you don't have to connect it at the water supply. You can connect it to the, the water lines anywhere in the house. Um, and so I was able to take this and install it under her bathroom sink way in the back, you know, plugs in. She, she just doesn't know it's there but it is able to determine not only when water is used, but what device within the house, what fixture within the house used it. Was it the shower? Was it the kitchen sink? Was it the, the, the toilet downstairs? You know, it, it, it's able to figure that out because it gathers data for time and it's got models of what the different usages look like. So I have this system installed. I check it twice a day and I can see, yep, she's gotten up in the morning. She's made her breakfast. You know, she's, she's been in the kitchen and at night I can say, yeah, okay. I can see she's had her dinner. She's got up after her afternoon nap and she's, she's active and busy. Um, and so gives us both peace of mind. She knows that 
I'm aware of what's going on, and I don't, I don't have to call her. I mean, the the, the worst thing in the world is the, she she tried doing the daily call. She had a friend in town who she agreed with, and it lasted almost two weeks. <laughs> um, because it rapidly devolved into, "Hello, are you dead yet?" Oh, okay. I'll call you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and they were both so uncomfortable, and yeah, it just, it just didn't work. Um, now, for some people, that would work great, but it's just the. I think the bottom line is that you need to find a solution that's comfortable for everyone and provides the information that that you need to keep them keep everybody safe. Yeah, I like your solution. It seems to be at the right level of observation out of her face frequent enough for you but not really super invasive just right. kind of oh yeah now, this is what's going on it's just another day now if she were struggling with cognitive decline and you know i was worried whether or not she was eating or worried about her wandering off or whatever then we we'd need other solutions so this is one of the things I say to people. There's no one answer, right? You need to start with where you are, figure out what the, the parameters are that you need to keep track of um, in order to keep everybody safe and, 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 and happy. And, and then how do you implement that? What gives you the best combination of, of tools to make that happen? Right. Nice. All right. So now let's go. Now we've covered the bases on that. Let's look at the other side. Like there must be privacy, security, personal freedom trade-offs. We've sort of touched on those, but how how do people think about those to make them acceptable? Like how do they draw their own lines and how do we make people comfortable that, uh, well, just that the monitoring isn't used for purposes other than intent. Right. And certainly with, uh, digital voice assistants, especially Alexa, um, that's that's a real concern that people have. Um, Facebook, Google, uh, they, they have not got a great track record in taking privacy seriously. And, and so I think that's a, a, a legitimate concern that people have. Um, so there's, there's a lot of pieces to this. First of all, we're going to have much more health information generated in our lives going forward. It's, it's not a question. It's, you know, it's going to happen. One of the, again, one of the things I, I like to say that the pandemic um, didn't make anything happen, but it accelerated a lot of things that were already happening. And telehealth is poster child for that. Um, but people have discovered that they like not having to go to the doctor's office every time. They like not having to sit in a waiting room with sneezing, coughing, hacking <laughs> people. And they don't they like not having to you know, wait an extra 45 minutes after their appointment's supposed to start because the, the doctor's behind. And you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why telehealth is, is very popular. And because of that, we have many ways that we can now get some of those basic vital signs, pulse, respiration, pulse oxygen levels, weight, some of those different kinds of things, blood pressure, um, that doctors 
routinely check just, you know, because it gives them a, a snapshot about how, how the patient's health is going. Um, we can do those at home just fine. And, and the, the tools for doing that are getting very sophisticated and very simple to use. Um, you can now have a home exam that looks in your ears and does checks your eyes and all that stuff remotely through, uh, through, through telehealth devices. And, and I think, no, I believe that that on balance is going to be a very good thing because the more people get that preventative health care, that checkup, that, that checking in with healthcare professionals, um, the sooner we find conditions, we find, find disease, um, before the symptoms get severe, which means that they can be treated sooner, which means you're probably going to have better outcomes, fewer complications, lower costs. Uh, it just, it's a, it's an upward spiral that helps everybody get healthier. And, and also an important piece of that is it's going to make health accessible to typically underserved populations. That was my next question. Yep. So, I mean, cause you're talking about these, something that can look in your ear and your eyes. Are we talking about things that are genuinely accessible to you, populations? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, uh, at different income best, levels, best, for example. Best, well, the income, income level is, is going to be a challenge. Um, you need to have broadband in the home. You need to have a way of getting this, uh, this information. Um, but Best Buy has been selling a kit from Taito for a couple of years now that does all the basic um, vital signs. And there are now a couple other products out there. Um, I think what's going to, what we're going to see more and more of is follow the money, right? And so whoever is going to be paying for those people when they get sick, be it the government, or the healthcare system, or the hospital system, or the, the insurance system, they're going to find out that it's cheaper to put these tools in the hands of those people than it is to wait for things to reach a crisis. Now, that means that we start with the more expensive kinds of situations. So people with chronic conditions, COPD is a classic. You know, um, if you can have a smart scale in the home, and a, a, a connected blood pressure machine. The gets on the scale every day, takes a blood pressure every day. Then uh, uh, it doesn't even need to be a technician. Uh, the uh, uh, artificial intelligence, intelligence-driven dashboard will be able to light up a patient when they've gained three or four pounds. Um, and then, uh, then you can have a nurse or technician contact the patient and see if there's a reason for it. And if it sounds like it's, it's fluid buildup, then you can send that nurse or technician out to do a more thorough exam and adjust their medications to bring the fluid buildup down. And it costs almost nothing. Whereas if you just leave them alone and the fluid buildup comes up until they get um, get it in their lungs and they start having respiratory distress, then you're looking at an emergency ambulance ride to the hospital 
come in through the emergency department, then have to be admitted to the hospital. And yeah, I was talking to some, oh, it was about 10 years ago now, but I was talking to one expert and they said, when you, the, when you get admitted with a chronic disease at most hospitals, that's a minimum $10,000 that it's going to cost. Yikes. Yeah. So, so if you can prevent one, one hospital admission, then that's going to save a ton of money that could be used for more remote monitoring and things like that. So diabetes, $3 billion a year in this country, including the direct, indirect costs, the complications and so forth. If we could cut that in half, which we can do um, by, by avoiding some of the, the more severe complications, the amputations, the blindness, if we can avoid things like that, we could save a ton of money. A, one, a billion or two is going to make, could be spent in a lot of other ways in terms of prenatal care and preventative health and all those things. And again, so this could just spiral up. Um, it could just, just get better. But to come back to your original point, yeah, there's a lot of data floating around. And who has it? What do we do with it? And, and that's not a, not a trivial question. Hopefully that's an opportunity for somebody to do the right thing. Not just well, the people are handling it, but maybe other people can figure out how to so, secure it. So when you have a national health system like, like they have in the UK, it's a much simpler problem because all the, all the insurance, all the hospitals, all the doctors, they're all part of the system. Okay. And so there's no left pocket. Well, there's still left pocket, right pocket problems, but they're more tightly connected. Here, the the data, the, the information is siloed all over the yeah. place. So your individual doctor practice has your information. Your yeah has some information. Your health insurer has some information. The hospitals that you've been admitted to have some of the information. Um, and and it's a mess. It's all over the place. Um, trying to match it up. Um, becomes a serious issue if you start thinking about it. I mean, people change their names. And so how do you keep keep it linked? Social security number is is useless for medical data because there are many people in this country who have multiple social security numbers for one reason or another. Um, what's worse is you have many social security numbers that have dozens or hundreds of people uh, linked to that same record. Now, some of this is result of undocumented immigrants or identity theft or a whole bunch of different reasons. But the point is, that's a terrible, if you're going to be making a life or death, death decision, um, you can't count on, on, on that kind of data. So how are we going to identify what data belongs to what body? Um, and we're, we're not, we haven't solved that. Um, we need something that is accepted and trusted across all these silos. So all insurers, Medicare, Medicaid, all the, all the hospital systems, the health systems, all are going to have to agree on something. And that's, that's, that's a pretty, pretty heavy lift. Um, yeah. But, uh, but it's worth doing because being able to take this community data is so powerful because you can, you can 
massage the data, you know, run it through artificial intelligence, machine learning, and find correlations and find knowledge buried within that uh, that can make an, an enormous difference in the health of millions of people. One of my favorite stories on this is a, a bunch of Carnegie Mellon students. Uh, and they were working with artificial intelligence and they were looking around at, uh, for a project, something that they could test. And, and I guess it was NIH, um, National Institutes of Health, had run a study to see whether or not exercise helped diabetic patients. And it was supposed to run for five years. And then after about two and a half years, they saw that there wasn't any correlation in the data. Um, and, and so they just abandoned it. And so these Carnegie Mellon students asked if they could just have a copy of the data set to play with. And the bottom line was they found out that there were actually two populations. For the majority of the subjects in this data set, exercise made a significant difference. But there was this small portion of the subjects for whom exercise was terrible. And it was so bad for them that the bad results confounded the good results from the majority of the, the subjects. But it was only by going through artificial intelligence and, and looking at all the correlations and, and combinations that they could figure this out. And at the same time, they were then able to say, and here are the attributes of those patients who shouldn't exercise, and right. here are the attributes of those who should. So this becomes actionable data. This becomes information that doctors can use. And it only comes about because they had all that amassed data to, to play with. So, right. so I've, one of my favorite questions to ask healthcare experts, especially ones who are working with big data and, and artificial intelligence projects and things like that. And I always ask them, is it possible to depersonalize medical records? health data. And every single person I've ever asked this has said, no, it's not possible. It's a myth. And here's why I say that. Okay. So in order to be able to use community health data in a way that's useful, right, you've got to, you've got to break it down. So one of the, one of the Democrat demographic, uh, filters that we often use is zip code or, you know, some other boundary. Um, but zip codes tend to keep similar communities together and so forth. So let's say we were looking at data from zip code 19083. And let's say we were curious about the health of white males who are 70 years old. And let's say um, just for, again, for demographic filters, we want them to be married, two children, um, uh, at least one living parent. At this point, you're getting very close to me. Right. Add chronic atrial fibrillation. Um, yeah, high, treated high blood pressure, controlled high blood pressure. Um, you're, oh, you're probably, you probably have me. But if, if you don't, add not diabetic, not, uh, not obese. It doesn't take too many more filters to end up with one record, me. So I don't think the issue is 
that we need to convince people that their records can be depersonalized and protected that way. Because we can't. Instead, I think the approach is, this is for the common good. Right? Um, the census is for the common good. We give a lot of personal information to the census because of the benefits that we're going to get out of it. And I think, I think that's the mindset that we need to take for the, the, our, our personal health records. Now, the one thing that I haven't heard that I think would make a lot of sense is we need a trust. I, I believe that the patient should own the data, which a lot of people say, and I, I'm, I'm, have come around to agree with that. However, I don't believe that the patient should manage the data. And we have a perfect analog in this country for this kind of a system, and that's credit bureaus. Credit bureaus have way more, way more dangerous stuff about you in their records than any of your health records. But, you know, unless you've got something seriously wrong with you or, you know, some massive disease that you know, is going to scare some employer, your, your credit record is probably a lot more dynamite than, than your health record would be. And yet we have the three major credit bureaus that keep all that stuff. Now we still own that data. We can go in and get a record of it. We can go in and challenge the, 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 the information that's wrong. If, if there's information there about somebody else, that's not us, we can get that fixed. So I believe the future of aggregated communal, communal health data needs to go through something like a, a, a credit bureau. Um, and so a trusted entity that we know will vet the doctors or hospitals or researchers or whoever's making a, a request to access our information, that they're going to make sure that they're legitimate. I mean, we don't know which banks or loans or insurance companies are legit. Um, and as with a credit report, we could, if we choose, lock our data so that nobody can get it. We could make that make that choice. But I think that's I think that's the the approach. Rather than try to depersonalize it, which I, again I don't think we can do. I think we give the individual patient ownership of it and control of it, but leave it to a trusted third party to manage it. Nice. I um yeah. First of all, common good. That would be the answer to many things. Yep. Um, and then on the depersonalization, a few years ago, I saw a presentation on sort of data analytics and personalization and um, gave me a window into how all of these things work, whether it's Google, Facebook or whatever. But if you have a number of attributes that line up with somebody else, they can pretty much predict almost any other attribute about you, right? I mean, you can get it down pretty clearly, even if they're not identifying you, but that's how they can reach you with messaging that's I, I, very specific. I still can't figure out why Facebook keeps showing me ads for women's shoes, but uh, there, there's, there's a women reason for that, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Well, there you go. There's that. You have something in common with somebody that you weren't thinking about. Well, Alfred Poor, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your going into depth on all of those things. I think a lot to think about. Um, around technology. Hopefully people are thinking about new ways to use it, ways to be smart with it. 
I will put a link to your website and your, excuse me, LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.